Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heavens of heavens. And you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Let us praise the Lord now by remaining standing and singing together hymn number 502. seated. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the evening hour of worship. We thank you for all of the many blessings and uh, the treasures which 
you give to your people, uh, many of them secretly by faith, but so many of them outwardly as well. You are a good and a kind and a gracious God, though we are an undeserving people. And so, Father, we acknowledge your many blessings to us. Again, uh, many of them, even the outward ones, hidden by your providence, and yet we discover with time that you are working as you did uh, in part for Israel. Let us let us remember that here was an unbelieving generation, but some of them still found many blessings, even in the wilderness, uh, as you take us uh, down the secret paths of life, which we do not understand. But uh, as you direct our way and as you unfold your plan for us, we discover many blessings on the way. And we discover a plan and a purpose which we could not have devised on our own. Uh, For that matter, O Lord, we we hardly understand why we're here once we're saved. We wish you would just bring us into heaven. Why why must we spend so much time in the wilderness? Why must we spend so much time in this world? But but the point is, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose, and and that is what we are discovering. And and what is so wonderful and, and mysterious to us is the enormous value that you place upon this world. More than we ever place upon it ourselves. Sometimes we're so spiritual that we forget that this world is great value and we just want to get out of it. But, Lord, you value it so much you came to it. You came down to earth and you dwelt among sinners and you even took upon our nature on yourself and suffered and bled and died for us. You experienced death. Your body laid uh, in, in a cool tomb and then you were raised and dwelt among us another 40 days And you'll come to us again and you'll renew renew this whole world, cause it to unite with even heaven itself. God, there's no way to escape the fact that as much as we want to get out of this place, as much as we want to get into heaven in our most spiritual moments. Lord, there is a value here that you assign to this place that we ought to assign uh, to it as well. There is a value to the days and the lives that we live here. Of course, you tell us not to love the world in a sinful sense, trying to grab up as much pleasure for ourselves as we can, not to love the world as the world loves itself in the course of sin, but to love it as you do, Lord, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There is, again, tremendous value which you place here and the lives which we are living. Father, might we see him uh, see these things the same way? Might we uh, go about doing our labors and our work and uh, and pursuing godliness and devotion and even Christian witness uh, with an eye to the plan that you are unfolding in history. And uh, Father, without going to the extremes that some have gone uh, seeking to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth, something that cannot be done and ought not to be done or even tried. Uh, still, we would seek uh, to bring the season of Christianity uh, wherever we go. So, Father, uh, as we go on with our week and close our Sabbath day, we pray that you would give your people an eye to the value and to the to the purpose of our life in this world and to see the value even in the hardships which you bring us through as you did Israel and to, to, to ultimately have an eye to the glories that await us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 50 is our first scripture reading. The last three verses of Genesis, verses 24 through 26, which come up again in the sermon text. And this is what we what we see at the end of that book. 
And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now that, as I say, will come up again. Let me see something real quick. All right. The second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is also a major emphasis, as we'll see in the sermon. I hope to make that plain. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. The wilderness community. What is it that we as the church can learn from them? Well, listen to this. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as uh, were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation... Uh, but but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And let us stand together and sing the doxology now. Apostles' Creed as we find it in the bulletin, saying together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now as a hymn of preparation, let us stand together and sing hymn number 522. Exodus chapter 13, a briefer passage this evening, though as I found a very rich one. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. Hear the word of God. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. 
For he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth uh, and encamped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And let us pray. God in heaven, we, we thank you for uh, the, the teaching of Moses here in the book of Exodus. We ask you once again that you might open your word to us through the preaching, that we might see uh, the things which you have to say to us more clearly. We confess uh, often in our Bible reading we don't uh, stop to meditate. Uh, we don't stop to, to try to gain the sense of what you were telling us, but here in worship as we work through the books of the Bible... In the preaching, we have an opportunity to deeply and comprehensively consider your word. And so give us an understanding of it, we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw last time the regulations for the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Firstborn. All were just laid down in the prior verses. Provisions which were to be met once Israel entered the land, something that she was to adhere to uh, once she had completed her journey. But those provisions now being laid down, it was now time to begin their journey. And as we'll go on to read in the rest of the book of Exodus and continue through Leviticus and Numbers, the journey was not so simple as they had imagined. It will turn into a great ordeal, into what is called the wilderness wanderings with many great and remarkable events that happened there in the wilderness. But this generation, as we will see, never will make it to the promised land. Their bones, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, will be scattered in the wilderness. Only here as the journey begins, there are several notable and striking facts for us to observe. Three. First, is the unexpected way the Lord directs his people in their journey out of the land of Egypt. Verses 17 and 18. Let me read them again. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. You see, what is being said here, and it's a point that's worth pondering, is that the Lord directed them another way than they might have expected. He did not lead them in the way they thought. He led them around in another way. In other words, if you understand the meaning here, and even the geography, he did not lead them on the easy and the direct path from Egypt to Canaan. From what I understand about a four days journey. He led them around the way. Taking the indirect and the unexpected path. So obscure was this way that it required, as we'll see in the third point, a pillar to guide them by day and by night since they knew not which way they went. And there were two stated reasons for this. First, that the direct route would involve the passing or the people passing through the land of the Philistines, a warlike people. And second, lest they face 
this hardship, grow discouraged and lose heart. Verse 17, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So the Lord led the people around by way of the wilderness in order to avert this danger and the discouragements they would face. These people had lately been slaves, not trained in war. The Philistines, on the other hand, were very warlike and would have easily defeated this newly formed nation. Better to pass through the way of the Amalekite and face them first as preparation for more serious battles with the Philistines. And so it was a token of God's grace and his favor, his care and his protection for his people that led them on this way. Matthew Henry, God's way is the right way, though it seems about. Or to quote what is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, this will be the first of uh, at least two times we'll look there. He says, no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation uh, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's what God was doing here. He was taking them down a difficult path, but not one that was too difficult for them to bear or to, or to, to, to face. Although at the same time, admittedly, the way that he was leading, which was the best way, was a place of temptation. He was leading them into the wilderness, only he was diverting them away from that of excessive temptation. Now, if you think for a moment, this is what he does for Christ. Christ, having been uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit in his baptism, is led or driven rather by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted. But temptation for him was not excessive. It did not overcome him. It was not more than he could bear. As he was tempted, he was supported. He was full of the spirit for one thing. And following the temptation, he was ministered to by many angels. Not to mention he was the son of God. So his humanity was supported all along by his divinity. He was not driven into the, tempta- into the wilderness to be overcome, though he was to be tempted. So Israel here. She was led into the way of temptation. Not temptation so great she could not bear. That was the other way. That was what she considered the easy way. What seemed to be the easy and the direct path. And so God diverted her path. And see in this the wisdom of God. His ways are best. He leads us in those ways that are right. And our part is only to trust that his ways are best, though they seem strange to us, though they seem, as Matthew Henry says, to be about. We can only imagine how uh, the Israelites must have thought here. God, the easy way is straight, not around. But they did not know the troubles that awaited them there. And how easily they would have grown discouraged and have been uh, and would have been defeated in battle. And so God says, go this way instead. I will see to the welfare of my church, though I lead her into the wilderness. Yes, he has his reasons. The wilderness is the place where he leads his church. If you read Hebrews again in chapters three and four, you will see this. Let me read uh, a few of those passages. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. I read this this morning. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and uh, they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Also, chapter 4 Seeing the church's situation as analogous to Israel's in the wilderness, facing the same temptations, but also the same prospect of entering into the land of promise. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you should seem, any of you seem to have come short of it. Again, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Also what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses uh, 1 through 5, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in, his sea, in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then in verse six, he says, now these things became our examples so that uh, to the to the intent that we should not lust after evil uh, as they also lusted. Verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our, our admonition, admonition, I mean, upon whom the end of the ages has come. The point in all of this is that the church, as we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, today, the church today, is analogous not to Israel in the land, but to Israel in the wilderness. The church, like Israel, is led by God into a wilderness. And do we doubt the wisdom of this when God deems it is best? Supposing... God did what we wanted. Suppose he made things easy. We would be like Solomon in his palace, ensnared by his many wives. What I'm saying is that the easy way is filled with many dangers. As Israel might have found if she took the direct path. God's ways are best. They're wisest. Supposing he made things too difficult. We would all fall into excessive discouragement. Yes, but as he says, I, I won't read it again in the same chapter, chapter 10, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He will try us. He will tempt us. He will lead us into the wilderness. But he will not tempt us beyond what we can bear. Nor will he lead us down the easy paths, for they too are filled with dangers. Let us see the wisdom in this. Let us praise God that his providence should lead us and not we ourselves. Matthew Henry again God knows our frame and considers our weakness and our faint heartedness and by less trials will prepare us for the greater. So he leads us into the wilderness to tempt us, to try us. And through and through passing uh, these tests and trials, ultimately, 
to lead us into the land of promise. But there's always this danger that we will fall and that we will falter in the wilderness. Uh, Thus, the admonitions of 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. One of the things we realize, and I concede it's an unsettling thought, it unsettles me. One of the troubling things you discover as an adult and as a Christian, and that is the fact, I think I said this, uh, maybe it was only in the first service, I can't remember now, but I remember praying, anticipating this sermon, that life only gets harder, it doesn't get easier. And that's something that, as I say, we find as Christians, and that's exactly what Jesus said what happened. And I know that we all tend to think, well, things will get easier in just a little bit, but that never seems to happen. The distressing thought in this, let me read it again, what Matthew Henry says. God knows our frame and considers our weakness and faintheartedness, and by less trials will prepare us for the greater. He makes us pass by the Amalekite to prepare us for the Philistine. The troubling thought is, Lord, I can barely face what you have for me now. Will you send more and greater trials? Yes, always more, he says, and always greater. But not until you can bear such as I have for you. Yes, but why, Lord? Why not make things easy? I am, I am tired and discouraged. I cannot bear the thought of more severe testing. You may very well wear me out. No, I will never tempt you beyond what you can bear. Nor will I make things easy. You are my disciple and I love you. I lead you in the way that is best suited to bring you to the promised rest of heaven. Let us learn, beloved, to see the wilderness like that as a place of temptation, but also a place that is full of blessing as it leads us on to where the Lord would have us go. What I just described and what I just read is the way of the believer and God, the way in which we interact with him by faith as we endure and experience his providences, which includes many severe and hard tests. And let us again rejoice that it is so. Let us not fear his providences, but remember, as as Hebrews tells us, that as we pass through the wilderness, as indeed the church must, and face many temptations there, we have a great high priest in heaven ready to help us just as we are tempted and discouraged. For he too passed through the same things. And he has great sympathy for her church, for his church in the wilderness. And as I say, he stands ready to help, grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, as well as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. On the other side of this, however, as I say, and as Hebrews says, and as 1 Corinthians 10 says, is the terrible, post- uh, the terrible possibility of apostasy. These people tempted Christ. They tested Christ rather than trusting him and following him as he led them on to the promised land. First Corinthians 10, 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And as you read, their bones were scattered in the wilderness rather than entering the promised rest. Rather than doing that, to use the language once more of the book of Hebrews, let us draw near in faith and a full assurance Let us follow Christ as he leads us on. That is the only way, beloved, to pass through the wilderness and to enter the promised rest. That is what we ought to have in mind as we begin the journey. But the second thing that we notice, I mean, as we begin the journey with them in Exodus here, 
The second thing we notice are the directions concerning Joseph's bones in verse 19. And we might wonder the significance of this. I read to you what we had at the end of Genesis chapter 50, the end of the book of Genesis. This is what we have in verse 19 here. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under Solomon, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. It's interesting to notice that here. Uh, again, if we were just reading our Bibles, I think we would read that verse and just keep going and maybe have a, a brief uh, thought of what was said at the end of Genesis 50 or maybe somewhere in Genesis. We can't remember where, uh, but in fact, there's a whole point of a sermon now you're, you're, you're going to listen to. And hopefully you will appreciate this verse a little more. What is the significance of this? Why is Moses taking the time to cause us to remember this? It's not just because they did it. That is not an adequate answer. There is real significance here. This is now the second time we've read about this. We read about it in Genesis. We read about it here. There's clearly something going on here that we are meant uh, meant to realize. We know that Joseph requested that they, uh, they take his bones from Egypt and when they return to the land... As God said they would, uh, that they bring his bones with them, uh, just as uh, we had uh, in, in the instance of his father. They desire to be buried not in Egypt, but in the land of promise as a token of their faith that God would fulfill his promise that their descendants would inherit the land, the land of Canaan promised to them. But also as a token, as we saw in prior sermons of their faith. In what that land typified their desire to be buried there. We saw in Genesis uh, most importantly represented their faith in heaven itself. Again, what the land typified. But here, as they fulfilled what they promised, we see two things. First, we see their faithfulness to their word. They were fulfilling their oath. They were, as we read here, under a solemn oath, which Joseph made them swear and they dare not break it. Something that what I something that I've said in the past, and let me here say it again, is that you cannot help but notice as you read the Bible, whether it's the, the Old Testament or the New Testament, these were days when words and promises meant something. It was almost worse to die than to break a promise. Of course, today things are different. People say things all the time that they don't really mean or intend to keep. And so they bear false witness against themselves all the time. And it's sad that it should be so among Christian people whose words ought to be so reliable that Jesus says our yes be yes and our no be no. It doesn't uh, need to be any different than that, nor do you need to take a solemn oath, really, because everything you say you should mean and you should be known for that. With little thought that it could ever be otherwise, either by yourself or others, knowing the kind of person you are. My point is, practically, our words and especially our promises are hugely important. If you accept what the Bible has to say about them, it is significant when we read they were doing this because they said they would. And it would be well if the disciples began to see that it was so among themselves. If we say, beloved, that we are going to do something, then let us be sure that we do it. This is the point I've made before. I won't go into any greater detail, nor will I uh, preach another point against cremation here as we find that these bones were to be buried. Let me go on here to the second point concerning the significance of the bones which they brought up, which is far more significant as to their action here in bringing up the bones. I confess this is something I wouldn't have even considered, uh, but for the commentaries which I found so helpful. 
But when I make the point, you will, I think, agree that the point is really obvious, even if not immediately. If you look closely at what Joseph said, which is recounted here, he not only gave them instructions to bring up the bones, instructions that they were now following because they promised they would, but he also made a promise. God will surely visit you. And it is their faith in that promise that gives the ultimate significance to their action here. If you remember, that was the final note of the book of Genesis. Joseph not simply giving instruction concerning the bones, but the key, uh, but the key final note was the promise that God would visit them in days to come. The book of Genesis, as I said in the final sermon, ends with a note of hope. That all God promised to Abraham and his sons would surely come to pass at the appointed time. A promise which came uh, just just before we read of the hardships Israel faced in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So it's well placed and well timed. At the appointed time, God will surely visit you. We turn the page. We read of all the hardships in Egypt. And now we find that promise is coming to pass. God will surely visit you. That was not simply the great promise that was being fulfilled in the life of God's people, but it was their faith in that promise that was being revived and remembered by this act. By bringing up Joseph's bones, they remembered what Joseph had promised. As they set out on this dangerous journey, they set out in faith. And I know they didn't keep up their faith, at least most of them didn't. I realize that they begin to disbelieve. In fact, as we come to the next chapter, we'll see that. And ultimately, this generation becomes apostate. But let's not forget that there was a kind of faith here that was present at the outset. Faith in the promise. And more importantly, uh, that in this visible church, there was also some presence of true believers, however small. Uh, We just read in 1 Corinthians 10 that most of them fell in unbelief, their bones being scattered in the wilderness. But not all of them. There were some believers And if only for their sake, this is recounted. And certainly we know Moses was one of them. So John Calvin says of this, in the midst of their adversity, the people had never lost sight of their promised redemption. For unless the celebrated adjuration of Joseph had been a subject of common conversation among them all, Moses would would have never thought of it. In other words, if the bones themselves did not represent the promise, Moses never would have pointed this out. As he did here. By this act they were looking for the promised redemption. That is the point. And likewise our situation being analogous to theirs. Though we wander in the desert for a time. Let us carry with us tokens of what God has promised to us. But let me come to the third point. Third and finally, we have information here about the pillar which guided the people in their journey, verses 20 through 22. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Well, if you understand the history of Exodus, you will discover that those three verses are highly significant. The pillar is something that becomes a major feature of the Exodus and the life of Israel as she passed through the wilderness. Part of the significance of 
the pillar, as it occurs not in verse 17, but verse 20, is that once they reached the edge of the wilderness, Moses was no longer able to direct them. It is an indication here that they were to pass through a pathless wilderness. They required now a guide. As Kyle and Dillich say, the Israelites were to enter the pathless desert and leave the inhabited country. Jehovah then undertook to direct the march and give them a safe conduct through a miraculous token of his presence. And that token was the pillar which guided them and which we read in verse 22 never left them. And as this is the first mention of the pillar, it seems wise for me to try to describe it before we consider its significance and purpose. We should look carefully at verse 21 and observe this double feature. That by day it was a pillar of cloud to lead the way and protect them from the hazards of the sun in the wilderness. And by night it was a pillar of fire to give them light and direct them through the darkness. We might have the impression that there were two pillars, but that wouldn't be true. There were not two pillars, but two features of the one pillar. It likely consisted of continual fire, which in the day assumed the form of a cloud-like smoke. And at night the fire was more apparent, since it was not obscured by the sun. As a pillar, it had the form of a column which ascended into heaven. We have to imagine it was quite striking in its form and appearance, impressing the people constantly with its supernatural character and origin. As we go on with them in their journey, the pillar we will see as their constant companion and guide. But what of its significance and its purpose? Most obviously, it was a visible token of the divine presence. That is uh, the most Important feature of the pillar. God was visibly manifesting himself to the people as their guide and their protection. Here was the cloud into which they were baptized as a nation. We read that earlier, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. And so we see, as Matthew Henry observes, there was something spiritual in this pillar of cloud and fire. And what was spiritual in the cloud was God's presence, which always sanctifies that is why it is spoken of as their baptism. To quote Kylan Dillich again, in this cloud, Jehovah or the angel of God, the visible representative of the invisible God under the Old Testament, was really present with the people of Israel so that he spoke to Moses and gave him his commandments out of the cloud. In this too appeared the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, the fire and the pillar of cloud was the same as that in which the Lord revealed himself to Moses out of the bush and afterwards descended upon Sinai amidst thunder and lightning and a thick cloud. It was a symbol of the zeal of the Lord and therefore was enveloped in a cloud, but which also threatened sudden destruction to those who murmured against God and sent out a devouring fire against the rebels and consumed them. Leviticus 10.2. That is a very, I know that was a lengthy quote, but a very helpful, I think, summary of what the pillar represented in the many chapters to come. And so there, Kyle and Dillage make a series of observations about the pillar, which I want to expand upon as we first notice it here. Obviously, as we've seen, as, I, and as I've said, the pillar represented the presence of the Lord. And so it represented uh, it being their constant companion and guide, his commitment to them, his promise to protect and provide and guide them. But it also represented, we discover, and we will discover, their commitment to him. 
The presence of the Lord was something they could not shake free from or get rid of. A presence which they were to discover through the pillar is holy. And which we see the pillar signified in every way. Even as uh, we will see devouring fire went out from it. Let me just notice in light of this, beloved, that it is always dangerous to deal with God. It's one of the lessons we'll see from the book of Exodus and the books to follow. I remember what was said of Aslan and the Lord, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Uh, is he safe? No, but he is good. Well, don't think of God's presence as safe. He is good. Yes, but not safe. I don't know how you could read the Bible and ever have that impression or ever try to live the Christian life under that assumption. Certainly, we can never know what he is going to do. And if we begin to tempt him, as Israel later did in the wilderness, then we ought to be afraid. I can tell you this. I am terrified of what the Lord might do to me if ever I should stray from him. If ever I should forsake him as a Christian and as a minister. I remember reading, and you will forgive yet another quote here, what J. Gresham Machen had to say about the incident recorded in Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira. We're not in the Old Testament when we read this. We're in the New Testament. Let me read those verses before I tell you what uh, J. Gresham Machen had to say. Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the, of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And afterward, it was sold. Was it not your own under, uh, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. God killed this man in the presence of the church. And the impression that the church had was fear. Now, as you read the Exodus event, you're going to see that happen over and over and over again. As you go on reading in Acts chapter 5, you see the same thing happen to his wife, Sapphira. And this is what Machen has to say about it. It is well that this incident has been recorded. It prevents a one-sided impression of the church's life. The power that animated the church was beneficent, good. But it was also terrible and mysterious and holy. Yes, God is good, but he isn't safe. That would be my summary of what he says here. The power that animated the church was beneficent, but it was also terrible and mysterious and holy. Certainly, that was meant to be Israel's impression of the pillar. And if not now, it would become her impression. They were struck at once with the goodness of God that led them on and kept them safe. And yet they were also struck time and again with the holiness of God, which was seen in the cloud and the fire. And what would keep them safe from being devoured from the fire? The same thing must be kept in mind today. The New Testament church in its earliest days discovered the same things. They discovered the goodness of God as he dwelt with the church. Yes, but also the danger. Time and again, we are warned, whether in 1 Corinthians 10 or 1 Corinthians 11 or in the book of Hebrews and those dreadful apostasy passages, as we've been uh, seeing, that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Indeed, there's nothing more terrible than this. Do not be afraid, Jesus says, of he who kills the body, speaking of man. Be afraid of he who kills the body and sends the soul to hell, speaking of God. Fear God and not man. My point is not to make you afraid, not completely, only to realize that God is holy. And then to really deal with that thought. And then to see that his holiness is not something to trifle with. Don't bring your sin into this church. Certainly not sin of a grievous nature. And don't you begin to tempt God by your unbelief. I, like Moses, can plead to God to protect you from the world, but I cannot protect you from him. If he should burst forth in anger against his church, then we should expect to experience terrible calamity. Do you understand why matters of doctrinal fidelity and moral purity are so vital to the welfare of the church. As seen, for instance, in the recent church discipline. Do not think that these things are easy for the church, but they are necessary. And the reason they are necessary is seen in the pillar of fire. It is because we believe that a God who is holy is dwelling in our midst. And his presence is one that is purifying, but also that is terrifying. God dwells with the church. He did so with Israel by a pillar. He does so today by his spiritual presence. Jesus assures the disciples he will be with them always, that he will dwell in their very midst. Even in the passage of uh, uh, concerning uh, church discipline, that's where he says where two or three are gathered. There I am in their very midst. Yes, but do not think that the power which animates the life of the church cannot also consume the church and destroy the church. What does James say? He says judgment begins with the household of God. It begins here and not elsewhere. Do not think that God will not judge or consume you. And if we go back to what was said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is all meant to be a warning to the church today, not to tempt God as Israel did, lest we suffer the same fate. Let me read some of those verses to you once more. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. Now, these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted And were destroyed by the serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. Let us be sure not to be like them. Do you see the point, beloved? Do you understand the lesson? God's presence is something which abides with the church like the pillar of fire. It is what makes our worship and our fellowship so dangerous, if I may put it that way. Learn the lesson of Israel. Her history was recorded for our instruction that we might learn from her mistakes and failures. She trifled with the living God and she paid for it. Unless we think that this was purely an Old Testament phenomenon. We read the same things in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 11 now, verses 27 and following. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Equally, what he says, and I think a little more strikingly even, and I don't think we'll be surprised to find this again in chapter four, uh, chapter 10, uh, the chapter I've been working out of, now verse 14 following on. We read verses 1 through 13. He says this in verses 14 through 17. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cu- Speaking of the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood? Uh, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And then he says this. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you realize what you're doing when you come together to worship? That's what Paul is saying. Time and again, what, what we recognize, whether through Israel's example or what the New Testament has to say to us, is that the point of worship is communion with God. We gather for no other reason than this. Only let us learn what communion with God really involves. As we find communion with God in worship, we are encouraged to find many special tokens of his presence. Israel found the pillar in the wilderness and there she found the presence of the Lord, a token of his presence. Here in the New Testament and the New Covenant era, we find him after a more spiritual fashion in greater simplicity. As for instance, Paul says at the table there, we are communing with the Lord. We are partaking of the Lord. Do you understand what this kind of transaction really means? If we should really meet with him there, do you understand, as Paul keeps on telling us, what is at stake? Are we stronger than he? Can we resist his power? Can we profane his table and think we will come out unscathed? Will we sin against his grace and think he will not judge us? Yes, the Lord is indeed holy. And let us learn what that means. Let us see the blessing in this. The holiness and the presence of the Lord is what makes worship As I've been saying something that is so special and so meaningful and so powerful. We are enabled by this means to to share and to partake of his holiness. All of the blessings of worship are connected to this fact that the Lord is present. Let us see the blessing, but let us also see the danger. There is the greatest lesson of Israel. Not that she obtained the promise, but that she failed to do so. God is good, but he isn't safe. The wise here will know how to apply this. Amen. And let us sing praise to our God. Hymn number 500. Um...
Receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.